0: Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John, and I'm Andy, and we are back to our day job around here, working our way through Ale Saga.
1: Yeah, it felt good to break away for an episode and do a saga brief and take a little time away. Yeah. Although, I mean, stepping away from Ale Saga to talk about the Battle of Brunemberg. It was uh, something of a busman's holiday, <laughs> but it was a uh, it was great of the Rex Factor guys to join in.
0: Yes, and if anyone missed that episode, please go back and check it out. Uh, Graham and Ali from Rex Factor joined us to talk about Brunember from the English, Scots, Irish, and Scandinavian perspectives, and it was a lot of fun for us. Uh, saga thing was, uh, we've said this many times, inspired by Rex Factor, and uh, uh, it was great to share the mic with them for an episode.:
1: Absolutely. But the, uh, the battle's over, Andy, and it's time mm-hmm. to return to our regularly scheduled saga. And we got
0: a lot to talk about. Oh, and we got a lot of saga to get through, too. Um, yep. A lot happened in the last few chapters, and uh, we're going to be picking up Ale's story at something of a crossroads for this character. Oh, so now that sounds like a very good invitation to recap our action from last time. Well, I know you don't need to be asked twice. Let's see if we can cover nope. it in brief. Keep it short, as it were. All right. How's a crisp 60-second sound? I'm game if you are.
1: Last time on... Aeol Saga Ael and his brother Thorolf came ashore in England after fleeing the wrath of Queen Gunnild of Norway. They found themselves in the midst of a titanic struggle for the future of the island, as King Appleston faced off against a combined force
0: of Irish, Norse, Scot, and Welsh warriors. Taking the king's corner, Ail and Thorolf found themselves leading the charge against the army of Hring and Adils, two turncoat earls who'd gone to work for the dastardly King Olaf. In the first day's fighting, Thorolf turned the tide of the battle at the critical moment by charging into the enemy's midst, killing both Earl Hring and his standard-bearer in a fury of berserk rage. Ah, but on the battle's
1: second day, Ael and Thorolf were separated when King Appleston put Thorolf in command of his own strike force. Tragedy struck when Hring's brother Adils caught Thorolf by surprise and cut him down in revenge. But Ael then took his own fraternal vengeance,
0: killing Adils and driving the northern forces from the field. Ael's revenge saved the kingdom for Athelstan and established England as a kingdom, but it couldn't bring his brother back. Thorolf was laid to rest in an English grave, with Ael placing golden rings on his arms. Now, how will Ael react to the loss of his brother, and to the king whose battlefield tactics may have led to the elder the Grimson's death? See, right to the point. Yeah, as usual, I uh, I don't know why we can't be this straightforward in actual episodes. We used to do whole episodes and judgments
1: all in once. Right. Yeah, but we had to take our time. I mean, Thorolf's death, it was said at the time, his death is the second major climax of the saga's action. That's true. As it is, we only scratched the surface of what's
0: going on in those chapters. True, true, true. And for uh, for instance, we, we didn't really get into the literary history of the story. I mean, this is one of those tangled moments where we're face-to-face mm-hmm. with the problem of history and saga writing, one of those subjects we would like to talk about. Well, we covered the bits of history we do know in the saga brief, but I don't think that's what you're talking about, right? No, I mean that the brothers fought and Thorolf died at Brunenburg. Mm. This entire scene with the King of England, especially if he is Athelstan, the King of England offering compensation for Thorolf's death, is a great saga moment. But hmm. it's clearly a bit of historical fiction. <laughs> uh, we're not within a stone's throw of anything historically verifiable here.
1: Well, okay, wait, wait, wait. Before you start winging rocks about the place, let's uh, let's just figure out where we are. When we are, blorgon scum. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, I call inspector. Um, <laughs> So we've already covered the chronology problem. Uh, Aeol and Thorolf are either 20 years back in time during this part of the story or else they were 20 years ahead when they were sailing around Sweden and Corland a couple of episodes ago. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Is this going to set up another Denorian joke? Because... No. Uh,
1: not on the heels of a community reference, no. Oh, there's probably a great place of to- Terrible fan fiction to be written about ale going back in time to try to save his brother on the battlefield. Gotta go
0: back in time.
1: Exactly. No, I'm just saying we shouldn't be too quick to toss the history baby out with the narrative bathwater. Okay. <laughs> uh, for, for one thing, Snorri or whoever wrote the saga, the author isn't just making this up from whole cloth. Well, he kind of is. I mean, not exactly, because there is the lending a draupa. Oh well, shabby. The is the lending a draupa if you're going to be technical about it. Uh, so, uh, the Islendinga Dralpa is a poem preserved in one of the manuscripts of the Prose Edda. Mm-hmm. It tells the story of a few Icelandic heroes and their adventures. And as it happens, Ail Scott Legrimson is one of those heroes.
0: Well, I mean,
1: heroes is a strong word there. <laughs> no, fair enough, fair enough. The, the point I'm making is that in, in, in telling Ael's story... The poet does mention that Thorolf fought and died in the cause of Athelstan in mm-hmm. England.
0: Yeah, so there's a tradition. And that
1: poem, yeah, and that poem is generally thought to date
0: from at least a few decades earlier than Ale Saga. The interesting point there for me is the connection to the Prosetta. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Yeah, so the Prosetta is, well, I don't think we need to qualify this. It's written by the infamous... Snorri Sturluson.
1: Yeah, uh, that's the very Snorri Sturluson I had in mind. Uh, technically this Draupa is credited in the edit to a poet named Hauker Valdisason, but otherwise, yeah.
0: Yes, Hauker, he's the uh, the father of uh, Exxon Valdisesen, right? Oh wow. E- <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're just gonna you're just gonna plop that one right down in the middle of the podcast. I don't you? know. Maybe someone will get it. But the <laughs> We want to get back the the connection to the Edda means that the Islandiga Dralpa and Eil saga are both connected directly to Snorri as well, which is quite. That's yeah, about the size of it. Yeah, yeah. So, so Thorolf's death
1: in England is part of a storytelling tradition in Iceland for at least a generation before the writing of this saga, mm-hmm. and Snorri knew about that tradition. I'm not
0: suggesting that the Draupa is reliable history, obviously. No, but there is a history of placing the Scotland Grimsons at Brunenburg, fighting for King Athelsen, yep. and having Thorolf die there, active in Iceland. Exactly.
1: Yeah, No, and to that extent, the literature reflects a traditional narrative about the battle. Okay.
0: Well, if we're talking about narrative traditions and links with the Edic and Heimskringla texts, I think there's going to be a couple of doozies in this episode in particular. Oh, absolutely. Uh, since you're
1: dangling that segue out there so expertly, uh, why I'd don't like you to dangle- go ahead and explain what is coming up in this time
0: all right <laughs> in this episode ale mourns the loss of his brother thorolf and seeks consolation from his new friend king athelstan of england this savvy king knows his way to our viking hero's heart gold rings and chests full of silver the rings are for Ael's service to Athelstan, and the silver for Scatha Grim, as compensation for Thorolf's death. Pleased by these gifts, Ael happily celebrates the victory at Brunenburg by making merry and composing praise poems to Athelstan. That was gold cunning In spring, Ael sets sail for Norway, where he plans to offer his foster sister and now widowed sister-in-law some consolation of his own. And it's not long before Ail is pining away, not for his lost brother, but for his brother's wife, Asgard. Meanwhile, after Asgard's father Bjorn dies, Ail gets involved in a dispute over Asgard's inheritance with a man named Berg Onund, husband of Asgard's sister. Berg Onund is a crafty fellow with friends in high places, and with a few well-placed insults about the legitimacy of Asgard's parentage, he manages to seize Bjorn's property himself. But Ail won't give up without a fight. Will our hero claim the hand of his beloved Asgard? Will he defend her honor against Bergonin's insults? Can he secure her inheritance despite the involvement of King Eric Bloodaxe and his irascible wife Gunild? And what happens to those chests of silver Athelsen paid for Thorolf's death? Find out as Saga thing takes on Ail's Saga Chapters fifty five to fifty nine.
1: See, this section really sees our story back on familiar ground, with Ale facing off against Eric Bloodaxe and Queen Gunild and their agents. The digression into raiding and adventuring is over, at least for now, and Ale is going to be showing some signs of maturing into his adult character. No. Well, I mean, he's no less combative or difficult. He's, he's still at odds with the Norwegian crown, and he's at least as likely to get into trouble with powerful enemies as before.
0: Ah, uh-huh. so we're going off in an entirely new direction this time. <laughs> How exactly is this a more mature Ale we're talking about here?
1: Well, he does some farming, and he's bald now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see. Very, very different. And we're going to see Ale squaring off against this man, uh, Berg who you mentioned.
0: Yes, Berg uh, Ale is at his best when he has a clear enemy as a foil. Mm-hmm. And Berg is really a great counterpoint to Ale. He's got a cunning legal mind, which isn't Ale's strong suit. He's politically powerful, which Ale isn't. And he's out to prove that Ale's reputation is a little bit overrated. Uh, well, we'll see how that plays
1: out for him. <laughs> uh, but before Ale can start planting seeds and annoying Norwegian queens, he's got a bit of unfinished business to deal with in England. Uh, Thorolf may be dead and buried, but there's uh, still a loose end to tie up. Which is. Part 27! compensation Thoralf's death must be paid for wait what compensation it comes from the Latin word meaning
0: free money free money no it doesn't it's a it's a kids in the hall joke oh kids in the hall timely timely Uh, if I had, uh, I mean, in high school, I yep. spent as much time as possible watching Kids in the Hall on Comedy yeah. Central.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of the defining uh, characteristics of my time in community in college
0: in New York. Yeah. Kids in the Hall episodes and to watching. To this day, any mm. anytime somebody says sausage or I see a sausage, <laughs> I, ha- I have to mumble, sausages. Sausages. Saus- but nobody, nobody <laughs> ever gets it. Anyway, what I was expressing confusion about, I understand what compensation is. Uh, it, but Thorolf's death has already been "quote unquote" paid for. Mm-hmm. Remember, Ail killed Adils in revenge for Thorolf's death right on the battlefield. So, you know, and Adils' li- Adils' leader, King Olaf, died after that, right? Yeah. So, if he's after payback in blood, he's in some ways he's already had it. Um, and if he's looking for a monetary settlement, there's really no one left to seek compensation from. And obviously, well- John, I'm playing. You know, yeah. a role here for you. I mean, obviously this depends on how you read the situation. Well, yeah, I mean, I've read the book, so I know where this is going. I'm just <laughs> uh, I'm just helping you out. But you're, but you're <laughs> playing the straw man beautifully. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've been told I'm, I'm one of the best straw men. <laughs> anyway, the way that AL sees it, there's one person who benefited from Thorolf's death, and that is King Athelstan. Yes, well done, Scarecrow. Uh, so this is one of those moments that I think quoting from
1: the Wikipedia article about this saga is sort of useful Oh, you have the Wikipedia page for this <laughs> I do indeed uh, This well. chapter of the saga is summarized as follows Ael composed a Draupa and praised the king Thorolf was killed And King Athelstan compensated Eil for Thorolf's loss with two chests of silver
0: Well, that's concise and kind of a spoiler Well, it's a story kernel we can kernel. move on to the next
1: chapter It's a, it's a story kernel <laughs> uh, I actually think this is a great example of how Wikipedia and resources like it should function. It's not a replacement for the whole story, but it can prompt that story. Uh, many so- scholars read texts like uh, the La Nama book or the English Anglo-Saxon Chronicle the same way. Right? They're just meant to be story prompts. It's just enough information to allow
0: a reader to re- recall and retell a larger story. Yeah, and once in a while, one of those larger stories survives in a written form – or else the chronicler is moved to write in more detail. In fact, the poem, The Battle of Brunnenberg, that we spent our saga brief talking about, is an example of that. The poem is actually a chronicle entry that maybe got out of hand and became a narrative poem, or <laughs> it was a poem that was circulating that was inserted by the right. uh, by sure. the the editor. Mm-hmm. But yeah, usually the kernel is just that, and then it's up to an interpolator to render the full story. And we see that with right. the Anomal book and its kind of development in the sagas. A lot of sagas are drawing directly from that as the, the kernel that they want to yeah. build on.
1: Right. And I often think the same way about wiki entries. Uh, statistically, most of them are just kernels, right? I mean, or uh, what's the word they use? They call them the basic entries, seeds, stubs, something like that. I'll go with stubs, sure. Uh, So in this case, our stub is that after the battle, Eil writes poetry about the king, and the king makes a generous gift to Eil,
0: apparently in compensation for Thorolf's death. And now we're going to be the Interpolators. Or at least we're going to tell the longer story the way the saga tells it. Sure. Or we'll take even longer (laughs) than the saga, perhaps. Uh, And and we can talk about your analogy later.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: So
1: what happens is that Eil returns from burying his brother to find Athelstan and his men celebrating their
0: victory in a hall. Presumably, this is in the burr that Athelstan was using as his command post before the battle. Yeah, probably. Uh, now, Athelstan sees Ale come in, and we need to
1: remember that in this moment, Ail is coming directly from the battle and from the burial. He's mm-hmm. dirty, wild-looking, probably got a fair amount of dried blood all over him. Uh, Athelstan sees him and immediately orders that an entire bench be cleared for Ale's men and asks Ale to sit in the high seat across from Athelstan himself. And suddenly, as the king faces him, the author launches into his most detailed physical description of the adult
0: Ale. Mm.
1: Andy, do you have this handy?
0: I sure do, actually. I think we can just uh, read this one straight through, Mm because I think the, the author does a great job. He writes, Ale had very distinctive features, with a wide forehead, bushy brows, and a nose that was not long, but extremely wide. His beard grew over a long, broad part of his face, and his chin and his jaw were exceptionally broad. With his thick neck and broad shoulders, he stood out from other men. And when he was angry, his face grew harsh and fierce. He was well-built and taller than other men, with thick wolf-gray hair, although he had gone bald at an early age. Ale had dark eyes and a swarthy complexion. Ale cuts quite a figure. <laughs> yeah, I mean... He's meant to be unusual looking, I guess. Yeah, he isn't just different.
1: He's non-normative. Mm-hmm. Um, and the saga moves back and forth here from a limited to an omniscient perspective in presenting Ale and the way he's seen by others. So it's effectively establishing that Ale is different, but also that he's constantly in this feedback loop of perception. Everybody reacts to him as non-normal, which feeds into his sense of himself as monstrous, which accentuates his physical difference and causes further discomfort in others.
0: I guess so, yeah. And at various points in the saga, people respond to him with discomfort. And the author also drops in that reference to the wolf gray hair, just in case we'd maybe forgotten about Ale's grandfather, Kveldulf, or the uh, night wolf. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, now, Svonulder Oskar's daughter, sees this entire description as an assertion
0: of Ale's direct inheritance of his physicality from his grandfather and his father. I agree. I mean, there's a clear genetic component to what makes Ale so off-putting to people, right?
1: Yeah, and but at the same time, it's people's treatment of Ale as an other, right? as a trollish figure, that effectively makes him a disconcerting object of fear. Is it?
0: Uh, oh, I, you can go ahead and finish.
1: Well, I just this is a storyteller who's very aware of the social dimension in the framing of normativity.
0: That's true, though I don't know if – is it that Ale is treated as a trollish figure or that he presents himself as a trollish figure through his behavior? Right. Well, again, I think, it's, I think it's a feedback loop, right? I think one yeah. leads to the other, which leads back to the one. Perhaps, yeah. Um, but you know, so a lot of scholarship has relied on this description of Ale and as, the, as the basis for various ways of thinking about him physically and whether the argument is for Ale's trollish or monstrous nature or the medical model argument of Thord Hartherson uh, or Jesse Biok, for, for example.
1: Yeah, although those are arguments I think we can get into toward the end of Ale's life.
0: Yeah, yeah. I didn't start this digression, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't, want us, I don't want us to get too far away from the moment of that confrontation between ale and Athelstan. We could chase this particular rabbit all night if we want to really get into ale's physicality. Right. Uh,
1: all right, well, let's get back to it then. Ale has walked in, presumably with the uh, necessary record needle scratch sound effect. And now, I mean, even under normal circumstances, ale draws attention just by his presence. And now there's this added dimension of the way he's hulking into the room, splattered with blood.
0: He's a, why is he splattered with blood? Does it say that he
1: is? They say that he comes directly from the battlefield in the burial. Okay, yes. So he nice is not, family. unlike most men who would you know, clean themselves yeah. before the social occasion, he has not done that.
0: Now, no one knows what he's thinking, but they know he's in mourning. He's a one-man wrecking crew when he's riled, which he is at this point. Mm-hmm. And he's one of, if not the biggest men in the room. Right. Yeah, there's such an emphasis
1: on his bulk. Uh, his nose is broad, his jaw is broad, his neck, his neck, his shoulders are broad. I mean, the overall impression is of a massive human rectangle.
0: He's also tall and well-built, but yeah, maybe a bit rectangular.
1: Yeah, when Aeol stands framed in the doorway, it's actually a pretty good fit. Uh, but there's more. Uh, I'll read this part. Um, Ael sat down and put his shield at his feet. He was wearing a helmet and laid his sword across his knees. Every now and again he would draw it halfway out of the scabbard, then thrust it back in. He sat upright, but with his head bowed low. When he was sitting there, he wrinkled one eyebrow right down onto his cheek and raised the other up to the roots of his hair. He refused to drink
0: even when served, but just raised and lowered his eyebrows in turn. And Athelstan doesn't say anything or even move at first. He just sits across the fire. With his own sword on his lap. Now, in this moment, ale is just completely unreadable, right? He's at his most inscrutable. We know he's mourning and probably furious about Thoral's death, but what is he doing? Well, I think he's trying to draw attention to himself and show his frustration. I don't think it's very <laughs> yes. inscrutable. I think it's fairly clear. He, but uh, do you mean what he's up to in terms of his behavior? What are you, what are you trying to get at?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it makes sense that he's in the hall, right? It's a celebration of the victory that Ail just did a lot to win. If Ale knows anything about Anglo Saxons. Is that you definitely want to be in the hall when I mean, well, when the slightly tipsy king starts slinging treasure around the
0: many thinks earned it. Well, he's clearly waiting for King Athelsen to make the first move, isn't mm-hmm. he? He seems to be giving Athelsen time to realize what Ale expects.
1: Okay, yeah, but, but the part that I'm confused about, Ale isn't just sitting there. He's doing this bizarre puppet show with his eyebrows. Mm-hmm. He's working them up and down, right? waggling them, if you will, yeah. uh, like two feuding caterpillars on his face. I mean, which seems, on the face of it, no pun
0: intended, to be an odd thing to be doing at this moment. Oh, I, I, I think you intended that pun, but yeah, he's clearly up to something. <laughs> it's
1: been suggested this is meant to be an Odinic moment, uh, that Ail is using his oversized and shaggy brows to create the, a one-eyed appearance right, by okay. sinking one brow onto his cheek. Uh, Lois Bragg does a full reading of this sequence in Oedipus Borealis, and she associates this face distortion with Odin but also with the eye distortions associated with Berserk-type warriors like uh, Kukulun in Celtic Legend.
0: Okay, so let me get this straight. You're telling me that because he's able to kind of pull his eye brow down a bit uh, and raise the other one, that that's meant to reflect Odin's one-eyed look? I'm telling you that Lois Bragg reports that. Yeah, I I don't see that. I don't see that, <laughs> don't see that at perhaps all. Perhaps your um, eye th- is if, if too far down to... on your cheek. If you want to push some kind of mythological connection here, the mm-hmm. closest thing you're going to get is Thor in the Guilfaginning, right? When he finds out that his uh, his ram's uh, bone is broken, mm-hmm. uh, he makes one of his eyebrows sink down over his eye as he's kind of right. glaring, right? right? And it scares everybody. Right. It's a, but that's it's just a, trope. It's a trope for someone who's displeased exactly. about the circumstance, yeah. It doesn't even have to be mythological or, you know, it's just how you show a guy who's Mm -hmm. extremely upset. He's glaring as hard as he can. And drawing his attention, drawing attention to that glaring, drawing attention to his dissatisfaction or his displeasure with the raising and lowering of the eyebrows as he glares out of one eye and then the other. Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't see an Odinic (laughs) uh, parallel there. Mm -hmm. The Celtic part, it's interesting because, you know, when you read that section, Cuchulain is the closest you're going to find to something like that, I think. Right. It's still a bit of a stretch. I, I'm not sure what uh, Dr. Bragg is really pushing there. But uh, he – yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think this is a
1: performance, right? Uh, I mean, Ale is really in mourning. Don't get me wrong. But he's very much in show-don't-tell mode here. It's interesting to think that if it's uh, you know that Celtic idea that it would be – he would be performing his berserker uh, rage in a way that would read for a Celtic or British audience. But it is, yeah, I, I, I agree so. that it is a bit of a stretch.
0: Yeah. But, uh, you know, Athelstan gets it. Yeah. After, uh, you know, he sees Ale doing this, he stands, puts one of his own gold arm rings on the point of his sword and reaches it across the fire to Ale. Right now, at this point, Ail
1: draws his sword, takes the ring onto his own sword point and then puts it on his arm. Mm-hmm. And his brows immediately stop their little dance and he begins drinking and making
0: merry with the others. And that's not all. Athelstan has two chests full of good silver brought into the room, and he makes a speech. These chests are yours, ale! Oh, he's not an old man, is he? Nope. <laughs> That's more like my Dumbledore. <laughs> no, yeah, Athelstan doesn't make it to a ripe old age, I'm afraid. These chests are yours, Harry Potter. <laughs> These chests are yours, Aeol. And if you go to Iceland, you shall present this money to your father, which I send him as compensation for the death of his son. Take your own compensation for your brother from me here, whether land or wealth, whichever you prefer. And if you will stay with me longer, I will grant you any honor or respect that you care to name.
1: Uh, So obviously, uh, Athelstan is very much being presented as a good king here. Oh, yeah. This is Uh, how you do it. Yeah. He appreciates... This is how you do it. That's right.
0: This is how kings
1: do it. (laughs) He's going to keep on dancing for me, uh, you know. I mean, Athelstan appreciates the good qualities of his followers and rewards them generously. Yeah, right? and it's a it's a real counterpoint to the Norwegians who we've been shown are fickle in their
0: affections. Well, granted, it's only been five minutes. Well, still, you know, give um, him a couple years, see, but, see how it I've, goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, but where a
1: Norwegian king we've seen uh, looks for what their followers can do for them.
0: Athelstan is looking at it the other way around. Right? What can what can Brown do for you? <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of how it, this is being set up. Although Ale's already done quite a lot for Athelstan. Mm. He saved his kingdom and lost his brother, for starters. Yeah, sure. And Athelstan's
1: performing his gratitude in turn. Right? Mm-hmm. He's playing this very carefully, but I think very well. Uh, there's that long pause over the fire. And then Athelstan handing the ring over to
0: Ale, presumably with all eyes on him. Oh, definitely. I mean, everyone definitely noticed these two men sitting across from each other with their swords right. on their laps. Right? right. And then the chests of silver. And then the speech. Yep. He, he knows what's expected of him. You don't get to be the first king of a unified Anglo-Saxon England by being slow on the uptake, John. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and ale
1: loves it, right? He's absolutely mollified by this. Uh, he drinks cheerfully. He chats with the other guests. He even composes poetry in Appleston's honor. Oh, how exciting. For great grief, my brows drooped over my eyelids. But now, I've found one who smooths the wrinkles in my forehead. The king has pushed the cliffs that gird my mask's ground back above my eyes. He grants bracelets no quarter.
0: So this explicitly links the giving of the bracelet and riches to the lifting of Ale's mood. Yes. So one thing I think we have to ask is, why? If Ale is seeking compensation for Thorolf's death, why does he think that's a proper thing to do? I mean, to the degree that Ale ever I mean, to the degree that Ail ever concerns himself with what's proper.: You mean, why is it generally accepted that he can do this? Yeah,
1: this is a bit convoluted logically, but Athelstan's kingdom is saved in large part due to the Scotland Grimsons. Right, the death of Thorolf was a price paid for that victory, and honoring that with a compensatory gift, is I mean, you can see where that expectation could come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides, from Ael's point of view, Thorolf's death might be seen as being
0: partly Appleston's fault. Oh, because of the battle strategy that he was questioning yeah, before, right? Yeah, uh, Remember, Ael didn't
1: want to be separated from Thorolf on the battlefield. Right, He knew Thorolf would be weakened due to Thorolf's berserk the day before. It was Athelstan's idea to have Thorolf lead the separate strike force off to the side of the main fo- force,
0: and as a direct result of that, Thorolf died. Yeah, It's not really rational to blame Athelstan for that, but no. I suppose rational is is not the metric being used here. <laughs> Plausible is more to the point, uh, but what Aeol's after is tangible evidence that Thorolf's death and Aeol's efforts in the battle are not being taken lightly. Yeah, he. I think he wants a tribute. Yeah. Tribute may be a touchy word to use in the context, though. Tribute, that's a euphemism used for paying off violent Scandinavians who come to England looking to get rich. And uh-huh. this uh-huh. isn't... <laughs> Tell me, uh, which part of that doesn't apply to ale? Well, he's not raiding. He's not threatening them with uh-huh. violence. But uh-huh. he, he is definitely actively soliciting compensation, but compensation yeah. for a, a job well done.
1: Right. Now, to a modern audience, it might seem like he's looking to be bought off, to be bribed so. out of his mourning for his brother. But this isn't really about paying ale off. It's about the honor due to
0: Thorolf, which can be measured both quantitatively and qualitatively. Okay. The the amount of treasure Athelstan is showering on ale is impressive, which lifts Thorolf's importance. It lifts his value in the eyes of the witnesses there, Mm -hmm. uh, which include a lot of Vikings, right? Yes. Um, It buys him kind of a posthumous bump in status. Quite right, yeah. Uh, And qualitatively, Athelstan's very public performance of the payment
1: is another bump in status. Mm -hmm. Now this one, though, isn't just to Thorolf, it's also for Ail. Thorolf's death is one compensable loss, but Ale's grief is also
0: compensable, and Athelstan treats that seriously. He's pretty good at this kinging business that, Mm -hmm. Athelstan. Yes, he is. He's come from a long line of uh, good kinging. Well, you know. Uh, and and for for Ale getting singled out this way by the king, that, that's payment beyond riches. Mm-hmm. Ale's stock is sky high in England now. It Why would he want to leave? Uh, so much so that
1: Ale stays with Appleston through the winter. He doesn't leave, right? And he's living very well and composing additional poetry in Appleston's praise. He even makes a draupa, which we mentioned at the beginning, right? It's this uh, song-like poem with a refrain. And the refrain is, even the dear paths of the highlands belong to mighty Athelstan now.
0: Which is, I mean, <laughs> oh, that's, oh, a- <laughs> that's a... That's quite a slam on the Scots there. Yeah, it is. Although it's not quite true. You know, the Scots were beaten back at Brunenberg, but uh, they weren't wiped out. Right. And their king was still Constantine II of Scotland, mm-hmm. and he lived 15 years after Brunenberg and actually outlived Athelstan by over a decade. But maybe... Yeah. A- Maybe but the think, Highlands, maybe he's referring to the north of England. No, know. he's
1: not. <laughs> I think we've established pretty definitively by now that this author isn't one to allow boring old historical fact to get in the way of a narrative. I said,
0: did you, did you uh, look at the original? Is it well, right. confirmed that this is Scotland he's talking about?
1: Uh, I did, actually. There's a footnote that uh, that confirms that the reference is to the Scottish lands, or the Scottish, uh, the mountainous lands of Scotland. Well, very The place good. where the reindeer run or whatever. Uh, but it's still not factual, so, you know. <laughs> Well, no, uh, it's not factual, but, uh, you know, we said that this author is not one to let a boring old historical fact get in the way of a good narrative, uh, especially in this Brunenburg story. And uh, speaking of which, it's time to wrap up the Brunenburg
0: part of our narrative. But I was just getting comfortable here in this place that no one knows where it is. Well... Now a golf course. (laughs) Right, maybe a golf course. Uh, But ale's getting restless
1: in the springtime. A young man's thoughts turn to sailing. Uh, he tells Appleston, I need to travel to Norway and find out the situation of Asgard, my brother Thorolf's wife.
0: Well, if you feel you have duties elsewhere, that's your decision. But I would like you to stay here, or if you cannot, then return as soon as you can. And why wouldn't he, right? I mean, right. You got this <laughs> yeah, great not fighter. bad to have your own pet uh, uh, monster berserk warrior. <laughs> that's right. Um, but Athelstan then sets Ale up with a massive long ship that holds 100 men for the voyage. That's a right. big ship.
1: Yeah, the, the kind voyage, of ship that would
0: make some kings jealous. Well, lesser kings,
1: pettier kings. <laughs> uh, but this voyage you mention is a voyage to Norway. Yes. It's the, the place where Thoralf's widow and kids are waiting, along with the king and queen who want ale dead. Oh, yeah. Sounds
0: like a fun trip, doesn't it? Part 28, The Sin of Onan. Okay. Oh, That's the title we're going with?
1: <laughs> yeah, I had some second thoughts about it myself, but it's on the record now. I don't think we can do anything about it at this point.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we could just stop and go back, but uh, all right. This <laughs> nope. next section throws a lot of new information at us, so I think we're going to have to provide a, a bit of a narrative dump before we can really dig into what all it. This mean what all this means, but get okay. your pencils and papers out. Uh, right, you are ready. Uh, so okay, to orient everyone, we're now
1: at the end of chapter 55 of the saga. Ail's trip to Norway is uneventful, but when he arrives, he learns that Earl Thor has died in his absence. Mm-hmm. And Thor's son, Arnbjörn, has inherited both the title of Earl and the friendship of King Eric.
0: That's right. Um, that's Thor the Hairseer, right? We've talked yes. about him quite a bit in the past. Mm-hmm. Very, very important figure. Um, and right. this is a potentially useful thing for Eil, actually, since Bjorn and Eil are good friends and Eil's in desperate need of someone to intercede with the royal family on his behalf. Okay, but there's, there's a couple of things to mention first. Always first, Eil has to tell Asgard about Thorolf's death. Yeah, yeah. So people who might be swimming in all the names at this point should remember yeah. that Asgard is Thorolf's wife. Widow. Widow. She doesn't know yet. She's <laughs> right. also, As far as she's concerned, she's still his wife. Uh, she's also Arnbjorn's cousin, but she's the daughter of Bjorn the landholder and Earl Thor's sister, Thora, of the embroidered hand. Right?
1: Got mm-hmm. it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, conveniently, Asgard is staying with her cousin
1: Arnbjorn. Uh, so ale is able to tell her right away. Um, and this is one of those moments the sagas just gloss right over. We're only told that Asgard is... "Quote very upset at the news, <laughs> oh. uh, but accepts Ail's offer to provide for her and
0: her daughter Thordis, who is Ail's niece. And yet, the saga really laid it out for Ail's grief over Thorolf, right? Yeah, yeah. it's almost like the author's not all that interested in Alskerd's grief uh, or any a woman's grief in general. Yeah, maybe she's not our protagonist figure, and maybe maybe that's because she's not our protagonist figure, and maybe because the sagas often shortchange us on information about women in the stories."
1: Yeah, or Probably maybe the... the latter. Right. I mean, or in addition to that, maybe the author is demonstrating the same reticence about emotional displays that most sagas do. Right? I mean, ale's overt emotionalism is very much
0: the exception, not the rule. In which case, we might infer that Asgard conducts herself with admirable restraint, unlike mm-hmm. ale <laughs> Possible. Uh, oh, there's another bit of information.
1: Uh, it doesn't seem all that important just yet, but Asgard's kid sister has gotten married.
0: Wait, Asgard's sister... Yeah, her half sister, uh, Gunild. Oh, right. We didn't mention this at the time because it Mm -hmm. wasn't going to be important until right now. But Asgard's mother, Thora, died a few years after they returned to Norway. And then Bjorn remarried to Olaf Erling's daughter of the pharaohs. Right. Now, and they had a daughter named Gunild. You can see it all on a genealogical tree. Yep, it's, but, a, it's a fairly complex genealogical tree,
1: but yes. <laughs> many, many branches. Uh, so this all happened 14 or 15 years back, and uh, young Gunnild has just gotten married to a brash young man named
0: Berg-Onund, ah. the son of Thordir Thornfoot. That's going to be important in just a little while, so please put a circle around Berg-Onund and Gunnild. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's make sure we've got all this, because sometimes when sagas do these updates, it, it gets a little overwhelming, and it's also been a while since we've, we've been in this area. Right, done the introduction of a bunch of new characters. Okay, yeah. Go for it. So, Asgard and her daughter Thordis are staying with her cousin Arnbjorn, who's now a prominent earl following his father's death. And Asgard's sister, Gunhild. Half his... sister. Yeah. Oh, yeah, half sister, yes. Gunhild is married to a young man named Berg Onund. Yes. Oh, and Berg Onund's family is very friendly with King Eric and Queen Gunhild. Ah, and those are Ail's enemies. Oh, yes, very much so. Okay, so that's clearly going to be a problem, but not quite yet. First, we have to deal with Ale's growing moodiness. Because as hmm. summer turns to autumn, ale is growing melancholic. And Arnbjorn finds him with his head covered in his cloak. After some time of this, Arnbjorn says to Ale, What is causing such sadness? You've suffered great loss with your brother's death, but the manly thing to do is bear it well. One man lives after another's death. Have you been composing poetry? <laughs> I love the accusatory tone there.
1: <laughs> You've been sneaking off and writing poems? Yes. Right, have you been composing poetry? I mean, This is Ale we're talking about. Of course he's been composing poetry. That is kind of his thing. Yeah. That and um, killing. Yeah. Ale, uh, Ale uncovers his head and says, mm, This is a case where the saying applies that you can tell anything to a friend. And he recites... A verse. So the answer is yes. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> the goddess of the arm where hawks perch, woman, must suffer my rudeness. When young, I would easily dare to lift the sheer cliffs of my brow. But now, I must conceal in my cloak the outcrop between my brows. When she enters the poet's mind headdress of the rock giant's
0: earth. Ah, so this isn't about Thorolf for anything. This is one of those (laughs) poems.
1: Well, one thing is immediately clear. Ail is not moping about his brother, as Arnbjorn thought. He's got a woman on his mind. uh, And Arnbjorn quickly
0: figures out who it is, because of some clues in the verse. Yes. Yeah, so if you remember back a few episodes, we talked about Eil faking an illness to get out of attending his brother's wedding to their foster sister, Asgard. Right. Because he was in love with Asgard himself. Yeah, It didn't say that, but that's what we inferred. Right. And mm-hmm. that attitude hasn't changed at all. So once he drops this verse, Bjorn catches on and offers to speak on Eil's behalf to seek a marriage to Asgard. So, without going down the rabbit hole of rendering Drolltkvät verse in English, which part of that verse was the clue exactly? Uh,
1: Yeah, I don't want to get too deeply mired into this, but we can explain that this is one of those veiled kennings. It's a phrase which, if you decipher it as a metaphor, then only hints at a subject hidden by a second layer of illusion or metaphor. That's what makes a good Drolltkvät, right? Right. In this case, it's the last line, Headdress
0: of the Rock Giant's Earth. Headdress of the rock giant's earth. If I Mm -hmm. had a dollar for every time I called my wife that. (laughs) I'm quite the romantic. Oh, you are. You are. (laughs) It's a little bit obscure, but an earth headdress is a fence, which makes Mm -hmm. sense if you think of it as a kind of tiara or something like that. So (laughs) this is very poetic yourself. Look at you. Yeah. This is the rock giant's fence. Exactly.
1: Now, to make the next leap in this logic chain requires a knowledge of Norse myth, Mm. There's a story told in the Prose Edda about a giant who builds a stone wall around Asgard. Uh, so the rock giant's fence, which is gerd in Old Norse, fence, surrounds the asir, or the As. So by this somewhat convoluted path, we get the rock giant's earth headdress, which is the fence of the gods, the
0: Asgard. Yeah, you know, whenever I study one of these poems, <laughs> I'm kind of amazed anyone ever managed to successfully woo anyone in medieval Scandinavia. <laughs> well, not everybody uses poetry. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I mean, and remember, the poet's sort of a great track record of successful courtship, actually. Yeah, well, that's not because, uh, that's because not every poet has a friend like Arnbjorn. I mean, he's mm. all for the idea of Ael becoming his cousin-in-law. And with that encouragement, Ael proposes to Osgard. But she well, yeah. but yeah. is never a good start to a to a response to a marriage offer. Yeah, no. She just says that she will defer to the opinions of her father Bjorn and her cousin Arnbjorn. So oh, okay. I don't know. Well, that's not too bad. I, mean, I don't know if she's being respectful is, or being <laughs> rather yeah. Demure well, that's the tricky what? part. I mean, Iron Bjorn is there grinning like a goon the whole time, so that's we clearly fine. Yeah, and it turns out that Bjorn's for the match as well, and you know this these families have been very close for a very long time. Um, yes, and it all goes off without a hitch, and Ael and Asgard are married that winter. Well, a happy resolution for Ael for once. Happy indeed. He's married to his brother's widow, which is maybe slightly awkward, but not unusual <laughs> in this time period. Um, uh-huh. But Asgard has been the love of his life. Um, he's known her for most of his life, if not all of his life, and sure. on balance, I would call this a happy moment. Yeah. Oh, you bastard! W- what would I do? aO married his brother's widow, and I just got the second meaning behind your "Sin of Onan" chapter title. <laughs> Sin of
1: <laughs> yeah, the 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 other shoe dropped.
0: Uh, um, so well- silly.
1: The the important thing is that the joke wasn't wasted. Uh, uh-huh. So what's going on with that whole proposal is that Aeol is being a little over the top, yes? A little aggressive. I mean, mm-hmm. he proposes directly to Asgard without consulting her father.
0: Exactly. And Asgard isn't really rejecting him. She's just insisting on a more conservative process that follows the guidelines mm-hmm. of of betrothal. It's it's kind of an unusual position for us to find Aeol in. I mean, he's inadvertently doing
1: the more modern church-sanctioned thing of seeking consent from the bride-to-be. Mm-hmm. But
0: is pushing him to conduct himself in a more traditional manner. Right. The the old way, so to speak, although, of course, when you say church-sanctioned, none of that has happened yeah. yet for, for right. the you know Ailes people, but uh, anachronistically, yes. Well, no, but for yes. the 13th century, yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the old way that we're talking about, and we've talked about many times, is to approach the father or brother of the desired woman, uh, with the would-be groom's brother or best friend making that initial approach. So sending mm-hmm. ale to Bjorn and Arnbjorn is a, it's a way of putting everything above board from a traditionalist perspective. And Arnbjorn's position here is a little unusual in that he's the closest thing Asgard has to a brother, but he's also Ail's best friend. Actually, I'd say Ail is the closest thing Asgard has to a brother since they're foster siblings <laughs> and in-laws, but yeah. I Touché, mean, good point. Arnbjorn's got a close relationship with both of them. Right, which is maybe ideal here, since it greatly improves
1: Ail's chances. Mm-hmm. And as you said before, we we know our Bjorn the landowner owes Ayle's family big time for saving his hide over that whole abducting
0: Osgard's mother Thora incident. Yes. So Ayle and Osgard have everyone's blessing. And there's another angle here. As mm-hmm. the brother of her dead husband, Ayle has sworn to stand as protector to Osgard and her daughter. But now he's proposing to her and that's potentially a weird situation, depending on how you look yeah. at it.
1: Right. Which suggests that Osgard is essentially telling Aeol to act as a suitor rather than as a guardian here. Right. If he acted as her guardian, he could make the call on her marriage himself. Yes. But it would emphasize their consanguinity through Thorolf. By approaching Asgard's father, Aeol acts as a
0: prospective groom, which is far less emotionally and socially awkward as a way to go about this. Now, this new couple need a place to live. And so Arnbjorn points out that staying in Norway would be a very, very bad idea, since Queen Jonild yep. is still furious about the whole nearly killing her brother thing and making him swim to shore. Is hey, she's crap. still holding a grudge over that? Yeah. That was years ago. Well, go figure. She's got a long memory. So mm-hmm. Eil, Asgard, and Asgard's daughter, Thordis, decide to move back to Iceland in the spring, and they manage a safe trip. Eil returns to the farm at Borg, where he tells Grim about Thoralf's death. Yeah, now that, again, this is not a moment the author goes into, but he does say,
1: it is not recorded anywhere that Ael divided the silver that Athelstan had given him,
0: not with Scott Legrim, nor with anyone else. Hmm. Yeah, this would be the two chests of silver that Athelstan specifically said were to be given to Scott Legrim as compensation for Thorolf's death, right? Yeah, those. You said um, give them to your and- father
1: yeah this is yet another aspect of ale's personality, and one that's going to really help define his story over the next few episodes. He's a bit grasping <laughs> uh, he's not, I, not so much
0: not so much miserly as determined to get and keep what he sees as his and clearly for ale Thoroth's compensation belongs to him mm-hmm. and now Scott Legrim, who doesn't know about the silver, is thrilled to see them, but, but ale surprised. We don't, think he, we don't think he knows about the silver, yeah. And we say them, thrilled to see Ale and Osgard, And Asgard, yeah. 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 And I suppose his granddaughter as well. Yeah. And clearly for Ale, Thorol's compensation belongs to him. And now Scotland, uh, and now Scotland who we assume doesn't know about the silver, is Mm -hmm. thrilled to see Ale and and Osgard and Thordis. But Ale is surprised to see how old Scotland gotten. And it turns out that Ale's been gone 12 years Yeah, that's that's actually
1: really useful to know, because all the time traveling that this saga author creates, just that he can place Ale at important moments in history, makes the timeline of the story a little tricky.
0: Uh, So now we know Ale's probably in his late 20s at this point. Yeah, something like that. And Scott LeGrim really is getting up there. He's probably in his late Mm -hmm. 60s or early 70s by now. He's old enough that it's good to have a strong son around to run the farm for a while. Well, there's a bonus there. Uh, Aeol and Asgard have brought a friend back to Iceland with them. Oh, they did? A companion, if oh, you will. Oh, yes. Thorfinn the Strong is along for the ride. Mm-hmm. One of the rare, long-lived Norwegian companions. Let's just see how That's long right. he lasts. Well, uh, continuing the wedding theme that we're on here,
1: he ends up marrying Ael's older sister, Sion, and settles down to run
0: one of Scott Legrim's farms. Well, they have a lot in common. Such as? Well, they both lost a brother who's traveling with Ale, for one thing. (laughs) That's a cheap shot.
1: (laughs) Accurate, but a cheap shot. Accurate. Uh, So Thorfinn and Sion settle down to a quiet farming life and eventually have a daughter named Thordis.
0: Well, who doesn't have a daughter named Thordis in this saga? (laughs) (laughs) And more importantly, does Thordis have any children of her own by any chance? Yes. As you clearly Hmm.
1: know, Thorfinn and Sion eventually have a grandson, Named Björn. Björn.
0: Better known as Andy's thingman, Björn, champion of the Hitterdahl people. Yes, indeed. Always nice to visit one of my men, or at least his grandparents. Such Mm -hmm. a noble line. All right, all right, all right. Settle down, settle down. So, Ale essentially
1: retires from piracy to take up the reins of the farm at Borg. This, by the way, will be the first of several attempts at retirement. Well, he likes to keep busy. Yes, he, um, does. he does He does stay home for quite a few years. Uh, but then one summer, a ship from
0: Norway comes with news. Bjorn, the landowner, has died. Bjorn's been a part of this story for quite a while. And he's actually Eil's father-in-law now. So this is big news for us. It also means that Asgerd and Eil now stand to inherit quite a lot of land and wealth from Norway with her father's uh-huh. death. Yeah, Hang on. It's uh, It's funny you should mention that because there's more
1: news. Oh, is that right?
2: Yeah, I had no Asgard's,
1: mm-hmm, Asgard's brother in law, Bergonand, has claimed the entire inheritance on behalf of his wife, oh. Asgard's younger sister, Gunild. Yeah, well, he, he can't just do that. Well, there's one more bit of news. Uh, Bergonand has done this oh. <laughs> with the help of his good friends, Eric Bloodaxe oh.
0: and Queen Gunild. Yeah, maybe he can do that with uh, mm-hmm. the help of the powerful. It's still pretty dirty dealing, though.
1: Well, that's exactly what ale thinks, and uh, he and Asgard hop into a ship and make directly for Norway. Yeah. And they leave uh, Thordis, uh, Asgard's daughter, behind with uh, Grandpa Skatlegrand. Oh, no- lucky uh, Thordis gets to hang yeah, out with 70-year-old yeah. Skatlegrand. <laughs> now, in Norway, they learn from Arnbjorn that Bergonand has the legal case sewn up,
0: uh, and that Gunild has made her support for his claim public knowledge. Great. So Bergonand, as we said in the beginning, is a worthy rival mm-hmm. for Ale. He's a tough, greedy troublemaker with a reputation for unfair dealing. And he's already got the property.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: he's got royal power backing his move. Aaron Bjorn essentially says to forget it and go home. Uh, we saw a lot of this in the uh, flow <laughs> of Montessaga, this kind of uh, yeah. desire for land and getting rejected. Uh, but Ailes convinced that Eric will allow him his lawful rights in the case. And so he visits Berg Onan's farm to <laughs> ask for a settlement of the inheritance. I, what is he basing that assumption on? I have no idea. I guess, you know, he thinks Eric is soft. He's got a reputation for right. being a little soft. You're right, though. Royal integrity has not been a reliable commodity in this saga. Maybe he just means he'll
1: be able to pull a fast one on Eric and get out before Gunnald can make a move, right? Rely on Eric's weakness. Exactly,
0: yeah. Or he's just counting on Arnbjorn's influence with the king to sway the case, but... Arnbjorn yeah, isn't as close with Eric, so where's that coming from? Yeah, I mean, it actually
1: that actually seems like the most likely scenario that he's hoping for Arnbjorn to retain some of his father's influence.
0: Yeah, but Arnbjorn uh, wasn't as close to Eric, so I where's agree. that Coming from,
1: yep, I agree. Uh, and well, I mean, as we're about to see, it's uh, you know we're quite right in that ale is yeah a bit optimistic here. Uh, so Ail first tries to settle this through an out of court settlement. Right, he and Arnbjorn visit Bergonen's farm so that Ail can present his case. And Ale's argument is that both daughters, Asgard and Gunhild, have equal rights of inheritance. Uh, even if it seems to me that Asgard
0: might be thought of much higher birth than Gunhild. Oh, so I got Bear going in, right? Mm. So, so how should he, what should he sound like? He's a conniving tough guy. All right. He's a tough guy. You've got a hell of a... Oh, that's the same. That's kinda, <laughs> it's like Ale talking to Ale. You've got a hell of a nerve, Ale. You're outlawed in this land, and yet here you come to pester the king's men. I consider there's little reason for you to make a claim for your wife when everyone knows she's the daughter of a slave woman. Ooh, that that didn't go well. No, it didn't. Uh,
1: so after Onand insults his wife, uh, we might expect Ale to go into an immediate frenzy. right? We know that he really cares about Asgard. Mm-hmm. But he's full of surprises, ale is. Uh, and he peacefully and carefully summons Onand to the Gula Assembly over the matter. Onan responds with a long series of abusive insults, but he, uh, he doesn't get violent. And Ail leaves without incident. You see, Ail's a reasonable guy after all. Well, I mean, he's a guy facing an uphill battle to claim his wife's inheritance. Uh, he knows that attacking his rival claimant in front of witnesses is only going to make it harder for him to get what he wants.
0: So instead, he's going to try to prosecute a case against Onan at a court controlled by Queen Gunnhild. Is that really the smartest? Well, I mean, technically, the court's controlled by King Eric. <laughs> well, you people listening to this can't see the look of disbelief I'm giving John right now. Uh, but I think <laughs> we all know, you and me and Ale and my dogs know, and my cat who <laughs> is always crying behind the scenes here, uh, that Gunnhild is the one in charge. <laughs> all right, we'll see how it plays out. Well, it's pretty much as we'd expect. Mm-hmm. Arnbjörn is seriously angry when he hears that Onan called his aunt Thora a slave woman. Understandably. But he still visits King Eric before the assembly to see if a deal can be worked out. Yeah, we'll deal with that accusation in a minute. Uh, Eric is obviously not at home
1: to any requests that would help Ale, and he warns Arnbjörn that Ale's presence in Norway is only being tolerated because of Eric's patience, which is running out. Yeah, Eric really lacks menace. He kind of does, yeah. uh, but as you say,
0: it's Gunild who's going to be the real problem in the case. Yeah. So the winter passes after this, and finally the day of the lawsuit comes, and Ail and Onund both appear at court with friends to back their move. Right. Now, we, so six months have passed, and Eric's patience mm-hmm.
1: presumably is still running out. I'm going to get <laughs> super mad any minute now. Yes. Uh, now, as a as what we'd call the plaintiff, Ail presents his case first, which isn't. Super complicated. He's married to Asgard. Asgard is the older daughter from Bjorn's first marriage to Thora of the Embroidered Hand. And so Asgard is an equal heir to Bjorn's land and wealth. End of story. Spitspot. Bob's your uncle. Give me my money. Hang on, now.
0: First of all, spit spitspot. I stand by my Poppins. summation of the case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So bergonen has a somewhat different interpretation of the evidence. As he explains to the jury. Asgard's mother. Thora of the embroidered hand, was captured from her brother Thorir's home, and on a second occasion from Brunhild's farm in Arland. She travelled from one place to the next with Bjorn and some Vikings, and exiled outlaws, and while she was with them, she became pregnant with Asgard by Bjorn. It's astonishing that you, Ael, would come here to demand all this after King Eric outlawed you, and that even though you married a slave woman that you would claim she had a right to an inheritance. Well, I demand that the court award me all of Bjorn's inheritance and declare Asgard a king's slave woman because she was begotten when her mother and father were under sentence of outlawry. Wow. Yeah, the, the mic drop is an overused idea, but it does seem warranted here, doesn't it? So, so how come Ale isn't already halfway through killing this guy? Well, I mean, for one thing, they're in court. He's not supposed to. There's a rope barrier around the court, you know, and violence and weapons are banned inside. Snorri Gothi even knows that. He waits till people come out and then he attacks them. Well, I shouldn't say Snorri Gothi attacks anyone. He kind of gets other people to do it. But that's neither here nor there. Well, they do it if he has to. (laughs) But, you know, it's a sanctuary space uh, for the duration Uh of the case. You can't use weapons.
1: Yeah, but this is Ale. And
0: Onan's practically begging for a fight. Oh, he is. He's insulting Asgard. He's insulting Ale. There's also the matter that more or less everything Owen has said is, well, kind of correct. <laughs> I, well, if we're going to be sticklers for the truth,
1: sure. Yeah. I, and I like your phrase there because it's correct, but that doesn't make it true.
0: Yeah, it's some sort of new definition of truth you're working on? No, no. This correct is, uh, and true, not the same?
1: Yeah. No, what I'm, what I'm getting at is Onan stating the facts,
0: mm-hmm. but he's putting a very careful spin on the story that results from the facts. Absolutely, yes. And like any good lawyer, he's massaging the truth to get the uh, yeah. the, the uh, perspective that he wants to yeah, be seen. the
1: truth a bit of a rub down. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, yes, Bjorn abducted Thora, but she was seemingly in on the plan. Yes. Yes, they were exiled. But they also reconciled with Earl Thorer with the help of Ail's brother Thoralf. That's true. Although, at that point, Asgard had already been born. Hang on. There's also the fact that their marriage was approved as legitimate. Ah, which uh, resolves no, that issue. This, to me, feels like one of those scenes that's meant to frustrate us with the law. Or, more to the point, the way the law can be manipulated
0: by clever or powerful men. Hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's fair. But there's no denying that the abduction of Thora, and that's what it was, whether she was in on it or not, from the family's perspective, it was uh, an abduction, mm-hmm. it definitely creates an opening for Onan to make his argument. And with the king's support, a pretext is really all he needs. Absolutely. I think that's the key,
1: right? It quickly becomes clear that the fix is in uh-huh. and that Ale doesn't have a chance of winning his case.
0: Yeah. I mean, doesn't Onan say something about it? He, he, yeah. Here it is. This is in front of the jury and Ale. And he says... King Eric and Queen Gunnhild have promised me that every case of mine in their realm will be ruled in my favor. I mean that's that's pretty blatant. Yeah, they're not even pretending that there's a case to be decided here.
1: Yeah, I mean this this kind of supports my point about frustration with the law. Yeah. Uh, now, as we'll see in the future, Ail is going to become even more cynical about law than he is about everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for now, this case is clearly going nowhere. Uh, once he sees what's happening. Ail spits out a verse. Uh, he actually says uh, several verses at this uh, lawsuit. We're just going to give you an example. The thorn pinned man claims that my wife, who bears my drinking horn, is born of a slave woman. Selfish Onand looks after himself. Spear wielder, my brooch goddess is born to an inheritance. This can be sworn to. Descendant of ancient kings, accept an oath.
0: So that's, you know, juries don't like anything more than poems. They want their lawyers to speak in poetry. (laughs) That's right. Especially obscure poetry. Um, But it's still fairly politic for Ale. He's mm-hmm. insulting, selfish Onund in the poem, but he's still appealing to King Eric to show fair-mindedness and accept the oath of Arnbjorn and others that Asgard's parents were lawfully married. Which yeah. that's kind of how these courts work,
1: right? And I grant you, it sounds good, but it's it's still ale—a man under sentence of outlawry in Norway—telling
0: the king to rule in his favor. That's true, and a man uh, under outlawry has no rights at all. It's shocking that yeah. he hasn't been killed.
1: Yeah, no, Gunnell does not like this.
0: Yeah, it's it. it well, Gunnhild didn't like it. Of course, that's right. not shocking at all. Right. No, this is the opposite of shocking. Yeah, Gunnhild begins taunting Eric, asking him, and that's also not shocking. Well, uh, right. asking him what it would take to stir him to action if he won't do it now, and then she calls out, "Where are you now, Alf Askman? Take your men to the court and prevent this injustice from coming to pass." Uh, we probably need to remind people about who Alf is. Oh, yeah, he's a short alien puppet from a weirdly memorable 80s sitcom.
1: <laughs> wow. Willie! Really? Man. I've been trying to work in a Gordon Shumway joke about <laughs> Alf Askman for a couple
0: of episodes now. You just go right for the low-hanging fruit. All right, yes, but uh, he is the Queen's brother. Is that better? Yeah, marginally so, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I can't believe you.
1: Alf is one of Gunil's two brothers. Uh, the other is Avon Braggart,
0: who killed Thorvald the Overbearing
1: in a sacred space
0: and was exiled for it. Well, that turns out to be something of a family hobby because okay. Alf and his men now take up weapons and rush the court, ripping down the ropes that mark off the legal <laughs> sanctuary space and driving off everyone in the court. Yeah, no, this is just this is a scene of complete chaos, right? With crowds of
1: men fleeing the armed uh, warriors. But in the mm-hmm. middle of it, Eil and Onand are still shouting at each other. Uh, even as he's being dragged away by Arnbjörn, Eil yells out to Onand, I challenge you, Onand, to a duel to be fought
0: here at the Assembly. Mm, but King Eric is among the men being pushed away as well, and he calls back, If you're that eager to fight, Ail, we can help with that. Whoa, that's not, let's not be hasty here. Ail's angry, not stupid. Yeah.
1: He's not challenging the entire royal retinue to a fight. Um, he lets Arndurne drag him away, but as he goes, he adds... Ah, I lay a curse on all the lands of Bjorn, Onand, and I name you a lawbreaker, a peacebreaker, an incurrer of the gods' anger.
0: The anger of the gods? Yep, it's yet another side to Ale. Hmm, but there's no real time to follow up on that, since it's now clear that Eric is going to try to stop Ale from escaping. Arnbjorn <laughs> rushes with Ale down to the shore, where he puts Ael and thirty men on the fastest ship, and so, which is always conveniently located. <laughs> sure, uh, but I guess if you're an outlaw, you keep a fast ship nearby.
1: No, I think I think uh, as we're going to see, Arnbjorn has some uh, ha, or had already had some ideas in mind about
0: how this is going to go. I think so. He, well, he knows Ale, right? Um, but Ale sails off as fast as possible, um, mm-hmm. and Arnbjorn tells Ael, "Come find me when this pursuit is over." Yeah. Um, he then sends the rest of his ships off piecemeal, and his own long ship is the last to leave the shore. Yeah, and yeah, I think Armbjorn had this entire thing planned out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think we've seen before that Armbjorn's family is pretty clear-eyed about the kind of danger ale's family is in from Eric and Gunnhild. Um, and it makes sense that he'd prepare for the worst when ale's is so determined to confront the king's favorite in the king's assembly. Not a good idea, Ail.
1: Understood, yeah. And it's probably always best, I mean, if you're going to spend time hanging out with Ale it's best to know where the fire exits are. Yeah. Uh, but this is actually pretty well thought out. Arnbjorn doesn't tell his men to go back to his farm. He sends them home to theirs. All the ships are scattering. And when Eric tells his men to chase Ale and Arnbjorn, they logically follow the biggest and slowest ship. Right, which Ale isn't on. Right, that's Arnbjorn's ship. When Eric and his men in their warships catch up to Arnbjorn, he taunts them a bit and keeps them talking as long as he can. But once he's confident that ael has got a good head start, he tells Eric that Ael was among the other group of ships heading towards Steinsund. Time
0: to break out the nautical maps, John.
1: Yeah, so Steinsund is a rocky island off the coast of Norway. It's an area of narrow ship lanes and dangerous waters.
0: It's not a bad choice if you're trying to escape mm-hmm. large, heavy warships. Yeah, and on paper, it's a great plan. And mm-hmm. Arnbjorn telling the king about it is is more of a face-saving thing. So is the idea here... Uh Ael's not afraid of you, he just outsmarted you? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. But unfortunately, Ale hasn't actually escaped. Oh. Instead, he's just sailed to his own ship, which was loaded offshore, and spends the night there. What? So Eric and his men catch up to Ael at first light, which... He, you know, he just sat there overnight. Yeah, no real explanation of the logic here, but uh, that's what he does. <laughs> and right. when the king's ship sail into view, Ale grabs his chests of silver he got from Athelstan which he carries around with him everywhere he goes. Apparently. I was going to say, he's already been back to Iceland. Why is he still carrying those things? I don't know. Uh, he jumps back into the smaller, faster ship that Armbjorn loaned him and then sails right past long longship. Right, which is fairly smooth. But again, it suggests he really
1: wasn't planning on getting caught.
0: There, There is one more thing. Mm-hmm. As the ships pass each other, Ail throws a spear across the water and the spear hits one of Eric's champions, a man named Kettle Hald. And Kettle is killed instantly. So take yeah. that, Eric.
1: Score one for Ale. Uh, I guess. And significantly, I think we're told that uh, Kettle is known for his more than passing resemblance to Eric. Mm. Uh, so this, uh, this, the suggestion here is that Ale thought he was taking a shot at the king. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, with Ale escaping, some of Eric's ships turn to chase him while others attack the merchant ship. Ten of Ale's men who stayed behind to save that ship are killed.
0: Well, I guess score ten for Eric then. Yeah, I was keeping score. Well, we do have a body count, and we're kind of keeping <laughs> score. But uh, And you were literally just keeping score, just a minute that ago. It. That's all
1: in the past, Andy. Uh, right now, we've got a full-on ship chase going. Uh, Ale's smaller ship has a head start and a lighter load, but it's also undermanned, and Eric's ships are gaining quickly, uh, using their oars as well as the sail. Ale needs a maneuver, and he's got one. The channels around Stansund are shallow and narrow, and Eil cuts between two rocks and slips away while the king's ships are forced to find another way around. He's able to escape, and after sailing around for a bit to confuse the trail, you know, the trail on open water, mm-hmm. uh, he s- heads back to
0: Arnbjorn's farmstead in Fjordana. Arnbjorn and Eil are both still pretty angry about Olan's insult, but for mm-hmm. now they're just trying to establish their safety. Arnbjorn sends Eil back to Iceland with Asgard and a ship loaded with wood— but before he leaves Norway, Eil calls the anger of the gods down on Norway and on King Eric. He does. He actually lays a curse on all the lands
1: previously owned by Asgard's father Bjorn. And there's some angry poetry. Uh, and his verse ends, May Thor, the land god, be angered at this foe, the defiler of this holy place.
0: So that's not actually a shot at Onund. Right? I mean, he's referring to Alf Askman breaking up the court sanctuary on Gunhild's orders. Right, which means Ale now sees
1: himself as being in a power struggle with the Norwegian crown. Just like good old
0: Uncle Thoroff 1.0. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so in other words, this probably isn't over.
0: Oh, probably not. Part 29 Ale's Revenge. So. Ale and Berg Onand are on a collision course. Oh, yeah. And we'll get to that fairly quickly. Uh-huh. But first, the author breaks in at this point with a, another rather confusing anachronism. <laughs> a Corvette enters the scene. Nope. It's cherry red. <laughs> Pretty sure I would have noticed that. Oh, no. This, this time it's about Harold Fairhair who apparently is supposed to have been alive this whole time, although I, thought, I yeah. thought we very clearly had him die earlier in the saga.
1: Yeah, I think we can mostly skip this part. Uh, if we have time, I want to circle back around to it later. Uh, we not. sort of dealt with this a few episodes back when Eric and gunnil took the throne. The upshot now is that Harold is
0: supposed to have retired, and now he's actually died. Uh, we, we definitely covered all of th- this yes. nonsense before, so I don't think we need to circle back for it. But take our word for it. At this point, 100% for sure, (laughs) Harold Fairhair is dead. When or how? Not particularly important to the narrative. So let's just. Interesting historically, though. I
1: mean, the essence is that Harold uh, is supposed to have let Eric rule in his stead. And while Harold lived, the other Haraldsons bided their time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now, with his father gone, Eric has to go off to Tensberg to fight his brothers over control of Norway.
0: It's best not to get too mired in the details about all this. Yeah, just go back to that episode, whichever one it Mm -hmm. was, and uh, listen to it again. Right. But the important point for our story is that Berg Onan doesn't go off to Tensberg with the king. Mm -hmm. He knows Ale is waiting for an opportunity to strike at him, and so he stays at home on his farm. Right, and Eric's actually okay with that, since he, he also doesn't want
1: Ale running around in Norway causing trouble while he's gone.
0: Right. Now, Berg Onan's brother, Had Thorgerson, is also staying at Berg Onan's farm. But their third brother, Otley the Short, is away with the king at this time. Right. And Ael's
1: uh, friend Arnbjorn is also with the king. Uh, remember, Arnbjorn is a prominent landowner in his own right, and he's yeah. he's obligated to
0: support the king in disputes like this one. Now, Ail knows all about the king's voyage somehow.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and more importantly, he knows that Onand is staying behind. And so Eol outfits a ship and makes a beeline for Norway. It's never addressed directly in the text, but we have to assume that Armbjorn is feeding information to ale by messenger.
0: Yeah. And I don't know that the author is all that concerned about how Ale gets his information, honestly, but yeah. that works as, as a Redcon, I think. Uh, <laughs> you get a no prize. Oh, thank you very much, Stan, the man. Uh,
1: well, it makes sense that Armbjorn would uh, want to help with this, right? I mean, uh, remember, Thora of the Embroidered Hand was his aunt. He's quite steamed about the way Onan dragged her memory through the mud in court. Sicking ale on him is
0: Arnbjorn's revenge, huh? I think so. But uh, as you say, this is all retcon speculation. So there's one more detail about where everybody is. Mm-hmm. Eryx left his foster son Frothy behind to look after matters while the king's on campaign. Mm-hmm. Frothy is staying at Arstad at the king's compound there. Yeah. Frothy's a big
1: deal. Uh, he's young, but fully grown. And besides being the foster son of the king... He's also guardian of the king's 10-year-old son, Ronvald,
0: who's staying mm-hmm. with him at Arstad. Right. And the reason we have to mention Froli here is that Berg Onund has invited Froli to visit his farm. Well, that's mighty neighborly of him. No, no. He just wants backup. Because, you see, <laughs> Onund's actually a pretty crafty guy. And he's been paying a bunch of fishermen to keep an eye on Ale's movements. A bunch of what? When, in Iceland? Wherever he is. Yeah. And when Ael starts equipping a ship for his journey, just as Eric is leaving, he puts two and two together pretty quickly. So Onan knows Ael's coming. He sure suspects it if he doesn't know directly. Mm-hmm. But Frohdy is happy to accept the invite, especially when Onan tells him that there's plenty of beer available for the gathering. He leaves Prince Ronvald at the king's compound, which I guess kind of makes sense if he thinks he's being invited to defend Onan against an Icelandic berserk.
1: Yeah, but... So Onan's throwing a party, right, as a berserk as killing party. I mean, as as cover for building up a defense against Ale?
0: I guess it seems that way, right? Mm-hmm. The, the problem is no one told Frodi that, and he and his men treat the occasion as an opportunity to get drunk at Onan's expense. <laughs> well just I mean, how royalty in Norway seemed to function. Absolutely. And uh, leaving the young prince behind also makes sense if Frodi thinks he's been invited to a week-long Kegger. I suppose. I mean, Ale was making the party scene in Iceland when he was only three. But okay, if you want to... Yeah, Actually, it's uh, it's funny you mention that, because like Ale, Ronvald isn't
1: thrilled about being left behind. Oh. And uh, as a prince, he's got a ship of his own and a dozen crewmen. So he takes his ship out for a pleasure cruise and goes to visit his previous foster father, Skegthor, at a farm on the island of Herdla
0: nearby. Skegthorir mm-hmm. or Beard Thorir, so uh, there's our beard nickname for this saga. I knew we'd get one. All right. So while Frodi and Onund are raging at the kegger, doing mm-hmm. keg stands and whatnot, whatever Ales, the Viking equivalent is, yes, yes, Ale sails into the Norwegian islands mm-hmm. and he asks around and learns about the gathering at Onund's farm. He can almost hear the rager going on. Yeah, uh-huh. and he learns something else before Eric left on his campaign. He outlawed Ale throughout the whole of Norway, which seems like he should have done a long time ago. But
1: yeah, I mean, it it does feel like something that, uh, you know, is a long time coming, Uh, but it's not good. No, it's 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 it doesn't really affect Ale's plans since he was already trying to be stealthy, but it does add a new level of tension if
0: he were to get caught in Norway. Right. So Ale is trying to stay under the radar, which is why he leaves his crew to guard the ships and goes to scout out Onan's compound on the island. Uh, yeah. The The basic story is this. Ale throws on a long hooded
1: cloak to cover his weapons and his face. And when he's close to Onan's farm, he sees a group of teenagers with big dogs. He approaches them and asks why they're
0: out exercising their dogs at night. You must be stupid. Haven't you heard about the bear that's roaming the island? he has <laughs> been killing people and animals and the reward's being offered for it. <laughs> what is this voice? <laughs> and while we're talking why don't you tell us while you're walking around armed? Well, you're just like half Liverpool, half Chav. What are you...
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, I'm scared of the bear too. Not many go about unarmed right now. In fact, it was just chasing me. You, you could see it over there by the edge of the woods.
0: <laughs> just to be clear, there's no bear by the edge of the woods. Well, there might be. You don't sure. know what's in those woods. Sure. <laughs> no, there isn't. Um,
1: Ale tells the boys to go get On- Onand and tell him where the bear is and then runs off.
0: This is all very convenient. Isn't it, though? You know, <laughs> like, there just happens to be a bear running around. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but Ale well, runs off to, to hide in the bushes. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great ruse. Uh, but remember, Kegger, right? Onand um, and his
1: guests aren't necessarily in the most alert and skeptical frame of mind right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So Ale gets comfortable and sets himself up for battle. Um, he's got... A halberd in his right hand, a buckler on his left arm, and his sword hung by a thong from
0: his right wrist. So he came prepared, in other words. Yep. And you did say halberd. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Once again, those mysterious halberds of the sagas crop up. Um, and John, I don't know if you've seen uh, Spider Man uh, Far From Home yet, but a halberd pops up in the final sequence. Really? It's nice. No, I haven't seen it yet. I, I had a good chuckle when the halberd popped nice. up. I look forward to that. <laughs> Only for Saga Thing fans would this be funny, though. <laughs> Anyways, just to forestall the usual social media questions, I, I, I did look at this one in advance. Uh, this time, the Saga author is using the term um, the kestioni or the kestia, um, which isn't helpful at all, really. You nope. know, still um, still comes down to being a kind of a halberd.
1: Yeah, this is another one of those moments when the word gets translated in Zuega as halberd, yep. which just
0: uh, kicks the etymological can down the anachronistic road. That's right. And as we've said many times, it's defined as a, a type of pole arm, such as that used during the Viking Age. So, right. uh,
1: Still kicking the can. Uh, yeah. Just to make things more confusing, Scudder's translation calls this weapon a halberd when it's used as a hand weapon, but as a spear when it's being thrown. But it's the same weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can assume that this is the same thick-shafted spear thing
0: that Eil and Thorolf used at Brunnenburg yeah. right. Because it's the same word, Kessia. I think so. And while we're at it, there's also the 12th century pseudo-king of Denmark named Harald Kessia. And his job. name is usually rendered in English as Harold mm-hmm. Spear, which is really unhelpful to us. <laughs> the mystery of the Halberd continues.
1: Mm. Uh, while we've been wasting time admiring Ale's enigmatic armaments, there's been a flurry of activity in the farmhouse. And a few minutes later, Bergonand, his brother Had, And their guest, Frothy come running to catch the bear.
0: Yeah. They're the only three who are still awake and sober enough to deal with this (laughs) bear. And Uh, all three of them are well-armed. And, of course, they see some some branches moving around in the bushes by the forest edge. Presumably with Ale making some kind of bear sounds. (laughs) Oh, I guess we're going to... Are those bear sounds? (laughs) Yes, those are bear sounds as far as I know. Whatever a bear (laughs) sounds like.
1: Uh, in my limited experience, they mostly sound like snuffling and scratching at things.
0: Uh-huh. Well, you actually got attacked by a bear once, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I said limited experience, not none. You, uh, you were the but, uh, inspiration for the movie Re- or the book and the movie Revenant, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, and cl- yeah, climbed across the mountains of New Jersey after my bear attack. <laughs> uh, it was a smelly but, trip. Let me ask, let me ask you, Andy, when when you imagine bear sounds. Do they by any chance sound like a large man charging out of the bushes with, say, a, a halberd spear in one hand and a sword dangling from his wrist? Well, now that you mention it, no,
0: that's not what I think of.
1: Yeah, so this is a pretty lousy impression then.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: because Ale comes crashing out, shrubbery flying everywhere, as he and Onan charge at one another, and they
0: both throw their spears. So the entire point of this bear attack stuff was to get the drop on Onund, and now Ail's given himself away... When they're still a spear throw away from each other. Yeah, he's not super stealthy. Uh, <laughs> he, he rolled the die and it came up a two.
1: <laughs> that's right. Besides, he's angry. Remember, uh, Onan slandered Oscar in court and stole her inheritance.
0: Fair. Still lousy ambush, though. Yep. Knock, that's a knock on Ale. Uh, <laughs> but Ale does knock Onan's spear out of the air with his buckler. It's a small shield. And and then he charges in, pulling his sword around as he comes.
1: Right. Now, Onand, meanwhile, also catches Ale's spear on his shield, but it penetrates the wood and drags his arm down, which means Onand is slower to switch to his hand weapons, and his sword is only halfway out of its scabbard when Ale happens to him. Ale happens to a lot of people in this song. Yeah, it's, it's kind of what he does best. Yes, it uh, is. And in this, in this case, he's wasting no time. Ale buries his sword in Onand's gut to the hilt,
0: then yanks it out and chops at Onand's neck, nearly severing his head. Yes. Every time I read this, I expect more of a fight from Onand. You know, yeah. he talks such a good game in court that we're kind of being led to see him as a real rival to Ale, and we even sold him as a good rival for yep. Ale. But instead, he falls for the old bear-in-the-bushes gag and <laughs> dies without even getting his sword all the way out. Yeah, it's not great. No. <laughs> uh,
1: meanwhile, Onan's brother Hod and Frothy uh, reach Ale just as he frees his spear
0: from Onan's shield. Yeah, and Frodi turns out to be even more of an anti-climax than Onand. His momentum carries him forward, and as Ale stabs out with the spear, Frodi manages to impale both his shield and his chest on it. So not... <laughs> it's not,
1: it's not, not, not fantastic. Again, no. Kegger. Um, now Onand's brother, Hod, turns out to be the only competent one, or maybe the, the most sober one in the group. Uh, he manages to get his sword
0: out, And even holds his own for maybe half a dozen passes before Ale chops him down, too. And Ale is at least careful enough about the law to call over the boys he'd spoken to earlier and tells them to guard the bodies so that they're not eaten by animals or bears. Right. Now, in most stories, that would be the end of the confrontation. It should be. But not for Ale.
1: Uh, He meets with 11 of his own men who've come running from the ship when they heard the commotion.
0: A very brief commotion, but yeah,
1: Yeah. Maybe they thought it was a bear. (laughs) Uh, so they, they, they ask Ale what happened and of course as he does in this section he offers a verse
0: has he been writing
1: poetry <laughs> <laughs> too long was I shortchanged by that tree of the glowing den of the heather fjords fish I guarded my wealth better once until I dealt out mortal wounds to berg Onund, Hide, and Fro thee too. Onan's wife, the earth I covered in a cloak of blood
0: I like that. Covered Odin's wife in a cloak of blood. There you go. Good stuff. The second half is of that poem is pretty straightforward. I think everyone uh, can mm-hmm. pretty much understand that, even the Odin's wife part. But uh, <laughs> do we need to talk about the uh, tree of the glowing den of the heather fjords fish? Maybe <laughs> it's getting fairly late, Andy, and uh, Ale's but still, about to blow the doors off this story. So if we're going to talk about this, keep it short. It's kind of interesting. This is it's another extended metaphor or kenning. The heather fjords fish is a dragon or serpent, which for whatever reason, is often said to dwell in the heather. Mm-hmm. It's, its glowing den is a hoard of gold, and tree yep. is a fairly standard poetic stand-in for a person. In this case, a man. So, man of the gold hoard, which is Ael's way of describing the greedy Onund. Excellent. Now, uh,
1: as we said, this is seemingly the end of the story, but we've been here before with Ale. He tells his men that their honor as warriors forbids running away under cover of darkness. Yes. We... We ought to go back to the farm and acquit ourselves like warriors. Kill everyone and take all the valuables we can manage.
0: And all the men stand there looking at him, blinking rapidly. <laughs> and what? one of them says, uh, What? <laughs> what? Yeah. We should what? No, I think we've mentioned this before, but Ale has an unusual idea of what constitutes a demand of honor. It's true. But he's also working himself
1: up into a proper frenzy, and his men aren't about to argue. He's so, a real bear zerker, isn't he? There you go. Uh, <laughs> well done. Wink, wink. Uh, I was trying to so, get that in earlier. I just didn't I, squeeze it. There. I appreciate that. So <laughs> I maybe appreciate a little you late. Felt the need to circle back to it now. <laughs> uh, so Aeon and his men attack the farm.
0: Uh, they kill, we're told, fifteen or sixteen people and loot the place. Now, this is essentially a rerun of the time he broke out of that torture chamber in Corland, isn't it?
1: Hang on, we're not finished yet. Before they leave, they destroy everything they can't carry and slaughter
0: all the livestock on the farm. Well, I mean, if you're going to do a job, be thorough. Yeah. And get it done uh, right. Now then, as
1: they're sailing out, they see another ship on the water. Uh-oh. It's young Prince Rönvald, who's oh, heard no. about Ael's movements and is hoping to spy on him for Onand. This is... Potentially very bad. Yeah. Ale rams the prince's ship, jumps across, and urges his men to spare no one. Oh, no. And they do, which is pretty easy since this is a pleasure ship and it's not actually prepared for battle. The young prince and all of his men are killed without a fight. So Ale has killed Eric and Gunild's son. Yes, he has. Uh, oh, and he tries to raid uh, Beardthor's farm. This is the guy who Ronvald was visiting. But Thor orders everyone to flee, so the farm is empty when they arrive. Ale is basically like uh, Gary
0: Oldman in The Professional, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. EVERYONE! <laughs> uh, Ale's crew does a bit more looting, but their heart's not really in it, and they eventually head back to the ship. Hang on now. Ale's not done, because he's got one more thing up his sleeve, as if he. Yeah. <laughs> his bloody, <laughs> bloody. As bloody if he hasn't sleeve. done enough. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Before he leaves the island, he erects a scorn pole. Mm -hmm. He sticks a horse's head on a hazelwood pole and carves an invocation onto the pole, calling on the spirits of Norway to cast Eric and Gunnhild out of the land. Amazingly, you're actually underselling
1: it. Uh, It's worse than that. He scorns Mm -hmm. the natural spirits of Norway as well. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, And he forbids them from finding peaceful
0: rest. Until they drive the king and queen out. And that is how Ale leaves Norway. Yeah. I mean, we have to assume there are going to be some consequences here. Well, sure. I mean, for one thing, just from a narrative perspective, we're not shielded from the horror of Ale's murder of the prince. Mm. It's clear that the kid can't even defend himself in any meaningful way, and Ale and his men just slaughter the entire ship's crew and the prince mercilessly.
1: You know, I mean, he's in a berserk frenzy, but it's, It's definitely the worst thing we've ever seen him do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, plus the scorn pole, brings his feud with the king and queen up to the level of all-out war. A one-man
0: war, if you want to. Absolutely. I think we can save the real fallout from this until next time. Sure, but that doesn't mean we're quite done yet. There's another loose end that we need to wrap up back in Iceland. Oh, right. Okay. Part 30. A Killing Joke. Do we have to pay royalties for that uh, <laughs> reference.
1: No? I mean, it's a you know, it's an adjective and a noun. I don't really know if we have to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Ao returns to Borg and takes up his work on the farm, almost as if nothing had happened. Right. And the following autumn, he's invited to a feast at his aunt Thordis's house. Another Thordis. Yes. Uh, so this one is the sister of ale's mother, Bera. Yes, and she's married to a man named Thorger, and they have a son named Thord, who we'll see again later. For now, Ael's due to spend a few days at their house, but on the second night of the visit, a rider comes from Borg with news. Old Scottlegrim, Ail's father, has died. Now, we've been getting hints that Scottlegrim
1: was getting older. Uh, remember, Ael essentially retired from his adventuring because he had to settle on the family farm and take over Scottlegrim's work. And that was something like a decade back at this point, right? We've gone through a lot of years in this section of the saga. Doesn't feel like it.
0: Yeah. Um, he's also been getting more irascible in his old age. Scholar group, mean, yeah, yeah. He and Ale never got along all that well, and and well, since they, I think they've never forgiven each other for the exchange of killings they inflicted
1: when Ale was a kid, right? Uh, maybe. Uh, this is—I mean, this is going back quite a few episodes at this point. But Scott Lagrim killed Ale's friend and his foster mother,
0: and ale punched Scott Lagrim's foreman to death in revenge. Yeah, not an easy thing to forgive mm-hmm. on either side, really. Uh, and and then ale didn't share out the compensation money for Thorolf's death, which has been a thorn in Scott Lagrim's side. Uh, assuming he knows about it, does well, right. he know about it? That's just it. Is that
1: you know the saga suggests to us that it's never mentioned.
0: And yet, it turns yeah. out that Scott Lagrim knew about it all along. Yeah. In fact, before ale left to attend this party, his father said, "You're taking your time." Well, I guess you you do the voice, but I'll try it now since it's a conversation. <laughs> You're taking your time about paying me the money King Athelstan sent me. ale mm-hmm. that's
1: the that is the that is the, that is awful. This. That, <laughs> <laughs> like, that was a, a robotic
0: is, uh, version what of what that. <laughs> You're taking your time about paying me that money King Athelstan sent me, ale. Mm-hmm.
1: Are you very short sure of fa- money, father? I wasn't aware. I'll let <laughs> you have silver as soon as I know you need it. But uh, for now, I know you've chests full hidden away. Yeah, I don't
0: think they've forgiven each other. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it also brings up another aspect of their characters, right? They're both a little, it's not just Ale, they're both a little grasping.
0: A little tight with a dollar. Yeah, if Ale gets his hand on a penny, it's a prisoner. (laughs) Uh, Compare that to his brother and uncle, right? Thorolf, both Thorolfs, Mm -hmm. were notable for their open hands with their friends. Yeah. Remember, that's what caused the rift between Thorolf 1.0 and King Harold. Harold saw Thorolf's showy generosity as a challenge to his own authority. Right. Well, and honestly, in a gift-giving
1: culture, it makes sense to equate open purse strings with social ambition. Yeah, I mean, generosity is a way of building connections. Why else would you be giving stuff away? Right, and for exactly that reason, it makes sense that Ail and Scottlegrim are money hoarders. By the way, right? It's a pretty straightforward equation, really. If generosity equals social capital, then misanthropes would be
0: misanthropes in part because they were miserly. A logical connection. And that combination of tight-fistedness and antisocial nature might explain Scott Legrim's last actions. Mm. After Ail left for the party, Scott Legrim loaded a large chest and a cauldron onto a horse, both of them suspiciously heavy. Ah, so Ail was right. Scott Legrim did have a bit put away for a rainy day. Yes, he did, and these things are filled with silver. And it must be a rainy day, because Scott <laughs> Legrim is out most of the night and returns without the money. And the saga author tells us that he buried his silver somewhere in the nearby marshlands at Krumsgilda under a stone slab. This is
1: actually a great final revenge. It is. <laughs> Not just on ale, but basically on all of humanity. Uh, people are still looking for Scott Lagrim's hoard, and no one has ever found it. I actually found a couple of websites they are still trying to drum up the, uh, the legend of Scott Lagrim's silver.
0: It's a much better sequel to uh, The Legend of Curly's Gold, isn't it?
1: That is a a low, low bar to
0: climb over. Uh, Uh, Saw that in the theater I did.
1: I I actually did as well.
0: Uh, Not something I'm proud
1: of, but there you go.
0: Those were different Uh, times. They
1: were. They were. Our standards were suspiciously low. Uh, Almost (laughs) as if entertainment had uh, led us to expect very little. Uh, Now – Keep this a uh, bit of
0: petty revenge in mind, folks, because we're going to see something like it echoed later in this saga. Uh, well, I hope this little prank was worth it because the night of activity is, it turns out to be too much for Scott the Grim. Mm-hmm. He returns home to his bed, but in the morning he's found sitting up on the edge of the bed, still in his riding clothes, dead and too stiff to be moved. And that brings us up to Ail's return to Borg. No one else at the farm has dared to touch Scott Legrim's corpse, so it's still sitting on the edge of the bed when Ale comes home. Right. Now, we've seen this motif before. Uh, It's the troublesome old
1: man who dies sitting up. Yes. Uh, There are a few examples of this sitting corpse motif in the corpus. And what's interesting... Uh-uh. And, corpse, corpus. I guess. Yeah, I'm just realizing the corpus. That's unfortunate. <laughs> what's interesting <laughs> is that... This, <laughs> not my point. Uh, this this might be the earliest example of the motif in the extant saga literature. Right? Because Eil Saga, we said before, is such an early text. Uh, yeah. And yet all the elements of the
0: story are there. Yeah, this is one of those moments when the oral traditions and folk beliefs are clearly shaping the narrative. A- exactly, yes. Uh, the, the author... Not only knows the correct
1: procedure for laying a difficult corpse, he assumes that knowledge in his audience as well. Uh, and we Which should is say, important for the corpus. It is important for the corpus. Uh, the cor- the, you have to lay a corpse in the corpus. <laughs> we should say, it isn't only difficult, people who do this dying-while-sitting maneuver. Because we have seen a version of the story in Vatensdala Saga, when mm-hmm. uh, my thingman, Ingeman the Old, dies sitting up in his chair after riding home with a spear
0: wound. Yeah, but Ingemund wasn't a troublemaker. He's just the opposite,
1: actually. No, exactly. He, he was universally beloved, uh, so much so that we're told two of his close friends commit suicide when they learned of his death by violence.
0: Such a strange episode, that one. Uh, especially because of the suicides. There just isn't a lot of suicides in the sagas. But, yeah. Uh, if we're looking for a close parallel to Scott the Grimm, I think Thorolf Twistfoot's the obvious one from Erbidge's saga. Absolutely. And you remember how that turned out. Yes, I do. Thorolf's son, Arnkel, had to have the back wall of the building broken out so that the corpse could be carried out. Uh, And it was heavy and immobile. Uh, They eventually gave up trying to move the body and buried it on the property because it was so heavy. Uh Uh, But Thorolf's undead spirit then terrorized the land years later. Uh Now, how does that compare to Scott Well, hopefully not well. I mean, (laughs) we hope Scott can be a little kinder, but uh, let's just read this bit. Ael went through to the bed, took Skallagrim by the shoulders, and tugged him backwards. "'He laid him down and closed his nostrils, eyes, and mouth, "'and then he ordered the men to take spades and break down the south wall of the building. "'When this was done, Ael took hold of him by the shoulders, and the other men took him by the legs. "'They carried him like this right across the house and out where the wall had been broken down. "'Then they carried him right out to Naustanes, and covered his body up for the night.' In the morning, at high tide, Scotlegrim's body was put in a ship and rowed out to Digrenes. Ail had a mound made on the promontory there, where Scotlegrim was laid to rest with his horses and weapons and tools. It is not said that any money was put into this tomb. So, some of that mirrors Thorolf Twistfoot and some of it doesn't.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like every step of the process serves a purpose. Right? And that purpose is to keep Scotlegrim from becoming a draugr which is an undead
0: monster who returns to torment the living. Yeah, and especially things like moving the body out to the island, putting a body of water in the way is an effective way to thwart the dead from coming back. Mm-hmm. Ael's grandfather, remember, Kveldulf, is buried not far from the farm, and we're going to see that mound used again in the saga. But Scott Grimm, for some reason, needs to be removed from the property and kept safely away. Right. Now, even the breaking
1: out of the wall is actually part of this. It's
0: mm-hmm. called a
1: corpse door. And the idea is that the dead are somewhat limited in their capacity to perceive the physical world. Yeah. Bringing them out through a hole in the wall and then repairing that wall means they can't retrace their journey into the house. Mm -hmm. And there are some recent papers on the subject of corpse doors. but sometimes I think reading old scholarship is much more fun. Uh, When I was researching this section, I found a really engaging essay from 1907. It was written by a Danish folklorist named uh, Henning Felberg who remembered the tradition of corpse doors being built into houses in Jutland. This is a bricked-up window in the back wall of a house, which would then be broken out in times of death to allow the coffin to be passed through the wall and out of the house. The corpse door would be immediately bricked back up so that the dead person could not return to the house through that hole.
0: Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's all of this, the island, the corpse door, all of that stuff, it's all there to put obstacles in the way of the the undead, right, exactly. so that they can't come back.
1: And we should yeah. say that it seems to work. I mean, we we, we don't get a subsequent story of Scott Lagrim returning from the grave or tormenting those who live at Borg.
0: No. Of course, we don't actually get any confirmation that the lack of a haunting is because of these precautions, but that's just kind of how it works, right? Uh, and we'd only get further information if there was a problem. So, sure. There was. I'll-
1: so I like that this is left open. Right? I mean, is, is Scott Lagrim the sort of man who might come back as a druid and cause trouble? Yes. On the other hand, is Ael likely to assume the worst of his father? Yes. So we're kind of left with their relationship unreconciled and uncomfortable. I and mean, we don't even know whether Ael correctly assesses his father in the end. Yeah, that's the kind of ambiguity the saga
0: specializes in. Yeah,
1: yeah, and. I like also, you know, when I look at something like, uh, art article, I love thinking about the fact that, you know, things like corpse doors are still being built into houses yeah. in the early 20th century, or right? that that tradition was still ongoing. And, I you mean, know, that's great. For, for all I know, is still ongoing in some isolated corner of Europe. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, ALS successfully laid his difficult father to rest, whether that was actually a problem or not. And the farm at Borg is now his.
0: So Eil is a wealthy and land-rich farmer in Iceland now, mm-hmm. but his killing spree back in Norway means that his wife's land inheritance is going to be difficult or impossible to claim. Uh, I'm going to go with impossible. <laughs> that sounds about right, yeah. Uh, now, that's where we're leaving him for now. But as Eil tries to
1: settle into life in Iceland, he's still got a few loose ends to deal with that we'll be looking into next time. Uh, for starters... He's still got an open invite to return to England whenever the mood strikes him. Hmm.
0: Well, number two, although I'd say this is actually more important, King Eric and Queen Gunild are going to have something to say about the death of their son and the scorn pole that Eil erected against them. Yeah, that's going to be a problem in the very near future.
1: Uh, and there's another faction in the story now. Eil has just killed his wife's brother-in-law, and brother in law, Bergonand, and Onan's brother, Had Thorgerson. But Onan and Had have
0: another brother, Otli the Short. Yeah, Otli's actually the most accomplished of his brothers. He's clever, strong, brave, and an experienced dueler. Hint, hint. <laughs> uh, and he's going to be looking for revenge for the death of his brothers.
1: Yeah, Ail's life is about to get even more complicated. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, so, Andy, uh, before we wrap this thing up, I want to go back for a minute just to the uh, the different chronological problems this part of the saga is presenting.
0: If you insist, let's do
1: it. All okay. right. Uh, so can you just uh, lay out for us some of the problems that we've
0: got? Well, we've been all over the place here. We we started the episode in England in 937. Right. The aftermath of the Battle of Brunanburh. Uh-huh. And then we're back in Iceland for something like 10 or 12 years, I guess. Uh, uh-huh. And then Harold Fairhair supposedly dies, which historically happened around 932, <laughs> uh, which was before the point at yep. which we started the episode. But whatever. That's happening some 15 years after Harold Bluetooth is king in Denmark, which we saw two episodes ago. But Bluetooth's reign began around the late 950s, a quarter century after the death of Harold Fairhair.
1: So, what's the point here?
0: Well, I mean, you've already tipped your hand. It's our point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you're a stickler for chronology, and even if you're trying to make an argument for the historical value of the sagas, well, this saga's a nightmare.
1: Okay. First of all,
0: yes, I agree. Historically, something like the
1: death of Harold Fairhair in this episode doesn't really work with the other events in the saga. Uh, the historical chain of reasoning here isn't a chain. It's, it's like a bunch of facts written on bits of paper and thrown into a high wind. Uh, but on its own, it's, it, it barely counts as an anachronism, really, because it's about Harold. Right, Harold Fairhair's entire biography is more than a little dodgy historically. So the power transition to Eric is just one
0: more confusing part of his story. True. Uh, well, remember, we we were talking earlier about how this author constructs time. It's a distinct possibility that the infamous Snorri Sturluson constructed some of the historical signposts in this saga, in part by cross-referencing his other early writings.
1: Yeah, I'd buy that at a bargain. But I think there's a, a broader issue here about historicity and the ways that we get tied up in trying to make sense out of these anachronistic moments. Andy? Let's talk for a moment about Edwin Panofsky's
0: Law of Disjunction. Edwin Panofsky, a Law of Disjunction. Yep. We've just finished with Aeol rage-slaughtering his enemies and burying his semi-estranged father and defending his home against the potential <laughs> walking undead father. Uh, now we're going to go down a rabbit hole into critical theory. Just for a moment. All right. Okay, so Panofsky proposed that
1: medieval creators, uh, artists, poets, and so on, conceived of history in ways that are fundamentally different from the way we do. His argument boiled down to an assertion that the medieval approach was to treat history – it was a kind of a useful set of representations instead of as actual history with its own context and meaning outside of its meaning to medieval people. Uh, So it only matters insofar as it matters for current consumers of history, in other words. Right. Judgments about the historical truth of, say, an artistic representation was based on the relevance of that piece and its message to the present of the artist and audience.
0: Yeah, I guess, that, I mean, that's a pretty standard old scholarship way of thinking about these texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the distance between what we expect to read and what we actually find in the narratives or in artistic representations of the past or whatever, that distance is explained away with the idea that medieval people thought about their worlds in ways incompatible with ours. Mm-hmm. There are interesting implications to that idea, I guess, but it also alienates the medieval and modern worlds in ways that aren't helpful in trying to understand the way medieval thought works. I think so. Uh, I think Panofsky's off the
1: mark, frankly. Uh, For one thing, he ignores most of the medieval legacy of the classic and late antique worlds and the sense of historical chronology that did inform medieval thought. Yeah, I think Bede would have words with Panofsky. I would say so. On a definition um, of history. But more fundamentally, I think, Panofsky's mistaking an intellectual argument for a cultural and artistic one. Most people do interact with history mainly through its representations and recitations. Most uh-huh. art does too. This is actually something that uh, A. Keith Kelly sums up really nicely. Uh, the, the difference, he says, is found more in the arena of intellectual scholarship
0: than on the practical level of human societal memory and its functions. In other words, if Harold Fairhair's history is a confusion of competing narratives, that's probably a fair representation of the 13th century conception of him.
1: Right. Because I think that's actually how most people, medieval or modern, create their composites of the past.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's certainly how most art conceives of the past as having meaning. Uh, Svetlana Boim did some really fascinating work on nostalgia and how we edit our knowledge in creating stories. And I think her ideas are really relevant here. Uh fundamentally our narratives about ourselves are ahistorical. Oh, definitely. Uh, to say nothing of how people would recollect their accumulated knowledge about a century-old timeline of events. Snorri, I think, has a better idea. Story
0: if if Snorri's writing this.
1: Yes, fair point. If, if. Snorri's got a better-than-average knowledge of history, especially as it relates to Norwegian king's regnal dates and the major events of their lives, right? He literally mm-hmm. wrote the book on the subject. Uh, it's easy to say... Medieval people don't think about history like we do, but I think it misses the point. This saga is creating a narrative chronologically focused on Ale and his family. The timelines of the Scandinavian world are, are less important to this narrative than the sequential telling of Ael's biography. The events of history are going to be reordered, pastiched, whatever you want to call it, into the version that makes most sense for telling Ael's story. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's a license we give to any art form in reflecting on the past,
0: right? Uh, and that suggests that truth isn't necessarily what they're what they're after, right? Certainly, yeah. I mean, Going we, back you, know, to we, Panofsky.
1: you know, we we watch a movie about uh, the Vietnam conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And they play a, a a song over a battle that wasn't published until two years after that battle took place, right? Our first response is not to
0: say, "Well, that's not right." It's right. because the song feels right in that moment. It does, right? And, uh, you know, uh, Tim O'Brien in The Things They Carry talks all about truth mm-hmm. and and art and fiction and how yep. it all works together. Yeah. Um, really great stuff. Yeah. Um, there's there's a section of Sverre Baga's book, uh, Society and Politics, about the heimskringla that addresses this as well, going mm. back to yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of yep. Norwegian stuff. Uh, he compares the Western Christian idea of absolute time, which is measured clock time and then relative chronology of storytelling in the sagas. Mm-hmm. So saga time as he calls it is is a kind of primitive time where time is tied to the events and actions of the story and doesn't function as an abstraction outside of narrative. So right. the story determines the timeline rather than the other way around. And yeah. I think you know as modern as modern people when we like to think of chronology we like to think of chronology or time determining uh, order determining story, yeah. but that's not how the sagas are working.
1: Right. And I honestly think that that's, that speaks more to a, uh, uh, an estrangement between the way we intellectually think of these things and the way we actually talk about them and experience them when we're not being intellectual about it. I think uh, so. You know, in a, in
0: a way that medieval people didn't necessarily distinguish. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's also there a distinction between what we would consider we moderns would consider history and art. Right. Um, Right. We would consider a work of art is not bound by the limits of fact and chronology, Mm -hmm. uh, but a work of history is. And sagas interestingly kind of straddle the, the line between history and, and art. Beauty is truth and truth, beauty. Yes. Uh,
1: So we can extend that to the writer. I think Um, the, I'm not sure it's necessary to resolve Snorri or whoever's ideas about Harold's life or any of the other bits. Uh, we don't need a, a more narratively, historically coherent version of the story than the one the author mm-hmm. provides.
0: Not that that's going to stop us from trying, of no, course. No, of course
1: not. Uh, but until we do get that time travel longship up and running, uh, there's always going to be some uncertainty about the timeline sagas are hung on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think uh, Bog's argument is really interesting. Uh But that book is going to be so important when we get around to covering the Heimskringla. That's a long time off. We can't even finish Aeol's Saga. How are we going
0: (laughs) to. Yeah. And it gets further and further away the longer we talk about time as an abstract construct. Fair enough. Uh, I just thought it was something to talk about. But uh, we can
1: sign off now. Thank you for listening to our increasingly uh, Heart of Darkness esque quest to study Aeol's Saga. (laughs) Uh, If you want to get in touch to let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, and what a good bear ambush might look like, please do so. Uh, we're always delighted to hear from you. And uh, we should have a few shorter episodes coming up. I believe this. I have to believe
0: this. Uh, that will allow us time to address a few of the questions we've been getting. Yeah. Keep those coming in. Send your questions to us. Uh, we're happy to answer them, especially when we're doing shorter episodes, uh, which uh-huh. has it has to happen. Um, but you can be in touch with us through our Facebook page where we are Think Podcast or on Twitter at Pod, or by email at podcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram account where I post occasional pictures relevant to what we're up to. Uh, That's uh, Saga Thing Podcast on Instagram. Uh,
1: Hey, you can also erect a scorn pole with a runic inscription calling down the Fury of the Land Spirits for the amount of time it takes us to produce these episodes during the summertime. Uh, Or send a postcard,
0: whichever. All right. That's it for us. Uh, If you Uh, like what we're up to here, please remember to uh, send us a review on iTunes or whatever format you uh, uh, like. Or... Tell your friends. That's yes. probably the best thing you could do. Please and thank
1: you. Uh, we'll be back soon with the story of ale's confrontation with Eric and Gunild. That's and we'll a good one. Uh, we'll oh yeah, and we'll see whether he can come through when everything, even his life,
0: depends not on his work with a sword but on his skill as a poet. So this is going to be about whether ale is capable of using his words to flatter and please his enemies. I don't like his odds. <laughs> let's see how it goes. We'll find out if. The pen is truly mightier than the sword. Ah, very nice. Until next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now.
1: And uh, while we've been admiring Ale's enigmatic armaments. Ale's enigmatic
0: armaments. Ale's enigmatic armaments. Ale's enigmatic. No, can't do it. Yep,
1: there you go.